paper laying on the sidewalk A little music from the house next door So I walk on up to the doorstep Through the screen and across the floor Summer Breeze, happy birthday, Dash Crofts, born Daryl Crofts in Cisco, Texas. On this day in 1940, Dash Crofts was one of one half of 70s soft rock maestros, and nothing is softer in a good way than this wonderful mellow song, blowing through the jasmine in my mind. Seals and Crofts were devoted to the Baha'i faith, and this song is less about a summer breeze and more about finding direction. In life, Jim Seals died a couple of months back uh, this year, uh, aged 80. But there's something effervescent, Anadine, uh, about that song. I don't know what it is, but it's the it's it's just the height of 70s soft rock, isn't it? Anna, no, I think you nailed it then when you said nothing is softer, yeah. and that yeah, it's, it's like it's, a pillow. It's, it's like a pillow, it is isn't like it? A pillow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 25 to 5, the panel. Christine is just appalled that I don't squeegee after in a guest house. So um, if you had a bath, you wouldn't wipe off the soap scum ring. Yuck. I'm your host, not your cleaner. I was brought up to clean up your own dirt. Uh, So, yes, I overwhelmingly agree with Peter Dunn on this particular issue. If you're staying at a house and there's a squeegee on the shower, you take that squeegee and you squeegee it down. That's what you're all saying this afternoon. And you're on the panel. Peter Dunn and Anna Dean, their views, their opinions. We love hearing yours. An anti-mandate group who also campaigned against the COVID-19 vaccine is standing candidates in local body elections to quote-unquote sway the results and throw our weight around. It says it wants to make the country quote ungovernable. Now this has been part of a wider expose by Lewis Cleave and Paula Penfold for stuff. So what are the issues for having such a group entering New Zealand politics and is it actually a possibility that such a group would be able to enter local politics or indeed national politics. Now, we've just had an email come through saying, I'm so happy to hear you talk about this. Uh, A woman in my local area has put herself forward uh, for uh, campaigning for a local election. Her, Her descent down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole is like watching a slow train crash and I'm concerned about this issue. With us is Dr Mona Cruel, Director of Victoria University of Wellington's Internet, Social Media and Politics Research Lab. Dr Cruel, kia ora. Kia ora, thank you for having me. This group in question is Voices for Freedom. They have around 100,000 members. It's not insignificant, is it? No, it's not insignificant. Uh, And also in the short time period, uh, they have made it from uh, 12,000 Facebook followers in 2021. And they have just been founded in in 2020 um, to 100,000 members. And they have asked those members to stand as candidates in the local body elections um, to sway the results, as you said, uh, and throw our weight around. Um, And so this is definitely um, not insignificant. um, And it's a real threat. But as though... Is it, Mona? Could it be a possibility that such a group or a group like it become part of council, become entrenched in local body, 
or indeed at the national level? So first of all, to the to the local elections. Um, unfortunately, we very often take democracy for granted. We are very often apathetic bystanders uh, and just vote, um, depending on in which country we are, um, which kind of elections every three or four years. Um, and so we think a political participation is done for us then. And so we take it very much for granted. Um, very often, we also care only about national elections. Uh, in political science research, we call them first order elections for that reason. And the turnout is much lower in second-order elections, um, which are also local elections. Um, and if the turnout is low, there's a real chance that candidates um, uh, make it um, that otherwise would not have made it, particularly when there's not much competition and there have not been enough candidates. Uh. This is one of the reasons why they actually started that. I think the media, with good intention, called on people to run, um, but they have reached the wrong ones, unfortunately. Um, and so um, now um, they, they actually, in a concerted action, decided um, to ask their members to run. And they have a real chance um, if, there are, um, if there is no competition and the turnout is low. And this has been kind of the backstory to this, hasn't it, Mona? Uh, the wider issue is uh, um, the lack of people standing, but also mm-hmm. low voter turnout. Yes. Um, so actually, we can we can learn for the future that uh, we should never take democracy for granted, and it takes our political participation, and that we should also run and consider running for local elections. Um, but I think now at um, at this point, um, basically where we are now is where the horse has already left the barn, um, and so now the only thing you can do is basically do your homework. Do not just vote for someone. Google people. Um, and f- try to find something out about their program and if they are, for example, associated with the Voices for Freedom. So it's kind of a civic duty that we have now to inform ourselves before we actually vote for a candidate. All right, before we go to our panel, can I please ask you a question? Can I please uh, highlight yes. this text? It's very interesting. Wallace, thank you for covering this important issue. Can you please ask Dr. Mona Cruel about the risk to school boards as well? So we have four vacancies, and we do know uh, we gave three people who uh, very similar to uh, a group like Voices for Freedom, could be even them, considering standing at our... Uh, local school. What can we do about it? It's a little rural school. Doesn't seem to be anything that we can do. I'm interested if she knows. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a real risk. Um, they always try to to enter um, politics on the lowest level. That's the easiest for them. Um, in particular, when there is not when there are not enough candidates. The only thing uh, you can you can basically do is kind of mobilize. Um, for other candidates um, and try to convince other people to run um, and to fill those positions. Um, but I think there is a real risk because they try to spread their positions everywhere. It's, um, and even they have already won at the moment they get attention. Um, they get attention and can spread their, their positions during a campaign. Um, so, yeah, try to mobilize for, for other candidates that run for the school board. Shall we start with Anna Dean on this? Yeah, well, I, I thought it was so interesting that they were, you know, the aims, the direct aims is to uh, to make the country ungovernable. Mm-hmm. And um, I just I just think that's it's so naive um, because, you know, destabil- destabilisation, it always makes it worse for people at the bottom. We actually need our hospitals, our schools, our police force. We don't, we don't actually want to be ungovernable. I just, I can't see really 
what they're what they're actually aiming for. But I, um, the, my biggest concern. I, I mean, I loved watching the fire and fury um, investigation that Paula Penfold has done. Um, it's it's kind of the worry for me is that a lot of these people aren't actually engaging with mainstream media. They're getting all of their information from these alternative information channels like BitChute and Telegram and things like that. Um, it's it's it, yeah, this a hundred thousand is a is a huge block. And yes, we need to mobilize, but um, I don't know. I I find that incredibly depressing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, the misinformation or the disinformation, um, because mm -hmm. it's intentional, we should better say disinformation, um, mm -hmm. is uh, that we see in, in all our research. They don't engage with traditional media. They are very against traditional media. Um, they also publish um, a lot of um, uh, sources like magazines called The Real News in 2021. Um, they, many of these kind of um, have been um, put into post boxes. Um, they have been uh, full of conspiracy theories. They have been called out by scientists, criticized for, by scientists for their wrong information around COVID-19. A lot of the people that are engaged in the Voices for Freedom are now are also people that we know from the former Advanced New Zealand, New Zealand Public Party that is making mm -hmm. it back again through the back door. So Claire Deeks, one of the leaders of the Voices for Freedom, has been a former Advanced New Zealand candidate. Uh, and so she's now on board with that again. And, and in our 2020 New Zealand social media study, we already saw Advanced New Zealand and New Zealand Public Party being the one that was spreading most of the mis uh, or disinformation and half-truth fake news around COVID-19. And they have been deplatformed by Facebook for a reason back then already. Um, and so have the Voice Freedom in, in 2021 been deplatformed by Facebook for a reason. Um, so this is, is pretty worrisome. And when they make it actually into our local bodies, um, they will use this um, as a platform to spread more of that information. Um, and that is, um, yeah, one of the most worrisome okay. facts. Yeah, Peter Dunn. Well, I, I'm less concerned about what impact they might have at the local, at the, at the national level, because I think there's some mighty big hurdles to climb. But I am concerned about the surreptitious way in which they could become involved in local government. I read somewhere that the part of their tactic is not disclose their true identity. And I think that's mm -hmm. a very dangerous trend. And I think people need to be on guard with their local candidates to check out just who these people are and what their backstory is. Otherwise, we could find a surreptitious takeover of uh, local um, authorities, particularly with the low turnout, and in some cases with not too many candidates standing. So I, I certainly agree that uh, we do need to be worried about where this might head, as I say, more at the local level than the national level at this stage, although I think there are some uh, pretty opportunistic forces out there that could take advantage of them at a national level as well if they were given the opportunity. So on that mm -hmm. then, uh, we understand, and again, this is from uh, the uh, Lewis Eccles and Paula Penfold's piece, that um, uh, the, the particular group was told by one of the leaders, do not put uh, Voices for Freedom or VFF as the affiliation or group represented when filling out the candidate paperwork. And I'm just wondering on that, is there anything regarding checks and balances that uh, would require you to actually declare every aspect of your life. I mean, this has been <laughs> raised in another issue, of course, in the last yes. couple of weeks. No, they're actually um, not required um, to um, reveal their affiliation with the Voices for Freedom, which is just, just an anti-vaccination advocacy group. 
Um, but what voters can do uh, on their part is basically to additionally Google those people, check them on social media. You pretty quickly find the connections to the Voices for Freedom. Um, and so even if they have been officially been asked by the Voices for Freedom to keep their affiliation with them under the wraps because they are know that they are not um, wanted. Um, and so you need to do some additional research in this local election as a voter. Before I leave you, Amona, Part mm-hmm. of a functioning democracy is that we do not, uh, we, 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 we allow those to stand even though they may be objectionable to others. We might not like them, but they get voted in. What of that? So, of course, they have the, they have the, the right uh, to run. Um, but uh, on the other hand, we also have the right to vote. Um, and to vote for the right people. And it's part of our civic duty and also part of a a democracy to inform ourselves before we vote. Um, So the question is, even if we give them the right to vote, which is part of a a democratic process, we don't have to vote for them in the end. And so, um, yeah, it is up to you and to the voter. Thank you very much, Dr. Mona Krull there from Victoria University's Internet, Social Media and Politics Research Lab. It's 13 away from five, talking rugby very, very soon with a former coach Laurie Maines. But first, there's a survey of data collected by Auckland Council's Animal Management Department has shown that there have been almost 500 dog attacks in the city this year, an average of over two per day. The Council's Animal Control Department says the reason for the consistent increase is down to matching increase of dog owners in the city. Emergency Department worker Dr Natasha Duncan-Sutherland has been researching dog attacks since 2014. She's with us now, Dr Duncan-Sutherland. Kia ora. Good to have you on. Kia ora. Why has Auckland seen quite the increase in dog attacks? It's a really difficult question to answer that one, um, the why. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's still a lot that's unknown, um, but we certainly know that it is increasing and it's increasing nationally as well, not just within Auckland. As an ED worker, what have you personally seen? So, look, what we'd see is um, children are more likely to be bitten around the head, the neck and the face area. So, for example, I've seen a, a two-year-old bitten by a German shepherd who's put its whole jaw around its the two-year-old's head and bitten part of its ear off. Um, adults are more likely to be bitten on the arms or the legs, and they. Um, and then there's also non-bite injuries, so uh, things like dogs running in front of a bike and causing somebody to have a severe pelvic fracture, for example. And needless to say, uh, Natasha, this is on the back of the man who um, uh, died um, from a, a dog attack. What rules and regulations do you believe the council should be putting into place to get a handle on this issue? Look, I don't think it's, um, you know, I don't think there's specific things necessarily that um, I should necessarily be offering. I think it's more about working with all of our population to solve this problem. Um, And I think there's some things that are known to work, like dog control measures, for example, that have an evidence base behind them. Um, But we really need to figure out how best to work with um, our communities um, and it's an urgent problem that needs to be solved. Mm. Anna? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been, I've been reflecting on it. And do you think it has anything to do with the number of people that got puppies and new dogs for, for lockdown? Yeah. And, and, and 20, 2020, it seemed like everybody I knew was, was getting a dog. And perhaps these dogs haven't 
haven't been trained so well or it's been a stressful time for families. I mean, it's, um, it seems like it's made a, a huge jump in these level of attacks. Well, really, um, there was a spike in um, uh, ACC claims for dog-related injuries in the 2020 year when there was a lockdown, but um, actually that went back down the next year. Um, but really, actually, dog-related um, injury ACC claims and hospitalisations have been increasing slowly over the last 40 years. So it's a kind of constantly increasing problem, and rather than anything necessarily to do um, with just the last two years. So, for example, you are eight times more likely to be hospitalised for a dog bite than you were 40 years ago. Wow. Gosh. Wow. That's incredible. In the last two years, there's been 25,000 dog-related injury ACC claims per year in New Zealand, with um, nearly 3,000 of those being children in the, in the age of 0 to 14 years. Um, on average, there's about 160 hospitalisations for children per year. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg because there's obviously a lot of other injuries and harm and things that happen or, or where injury doesn't occur um, where people don't go and seek medical attention um, and get that ACC claim. Right. So, you know, brief, it's a much bigger problem than just that. Brief comment mm. from Peter. Look, I'm certainly seeing more dogs around, people out walking them. I just wonder whether, given that increase, whether you can particularise what's happening to particular breeds or is it across the board? In other words, are some dogs more dangerous than others? I think that's also a really difficult question, that the role of breed is still probably unknown. Um, and that's for a, a number of different reasons, one of which is that it can be quite difficult to identify breed. Um, and so there's some sort of challenges around um, uh, the studies that look at breed. Good. So what should we do to keep safe? So, you know, this is the difficult question, I guess. Um, you know, the, the evidence base is that um, education around um, just safety um, and, and prioritising our children, making sure that we mm. put our children first, um, that that works. Um, and dog control measures do work. So, you know, the simple things, um, uh, leashes and fencing and just and stray dog management, um, anything that's... Um, you know, just going to keep people safe. Good on you, Natasha. Kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Dr. Natasha Duncan Sutherland uh, there. It's eight to five. The panel, RNZ National. Back from the dead. That's how world media reacted to All Blacks upset of Springboks. The 35-23 win for the All Blacks at Alice Park followed a run of five losses in six games, including a serious loss against Ireland. New Zealand Rugby is refusing to say whether Ian Foster will be in charge of the test match against Argentina later this month, August 27th. The panel did contact the board of the New Zealand Rugby Union and invited members of them on. But with us is Laurie Maines. He became All Blacks coach in 1995 and coached the ABs to the 1995 Rugby World Cup final. Laurie, it's lovely to have you on the panel. Thank you. First to the game. And what a turnaround, Laurie. Give us an insight. What did they need to pull out of the bag to achieve that? No, the remedy wasn't a difficult one to work out. The All Black backs had been under so much pressure because the forwards weren't gaining any forward momentum at the breakdown and, and even in set play, and therefore the South African backs were able to put intense pressure 
Now, what happened? I think Jason Ryan needs a real pat on the back here. He's come in, just been there two weeks. He's got, in that two weeks, he seems to have the all-black forwards back playing with the mana and aggression and strength that we expect from them. And on Saturday at Alice Park, they were able to create go-forward ball. They took the ball more aggressively forward. They cleaned out more effectively the opposition. And therefore, the all-black backs were able to have a little bit more room to move because the South African backs were on their heels going backwards uh, instead of coming forward like they had been in the in the previous test. Yeah. Laurie, you'd be able to relate to some of the pressure Ian Foster has been under? Yes, I, I was under a fair bit of intensive pressure in 1994, um, but... I think what we, Earl Curtin and I, were able to demonstrate was that we definitely were taking the team forward and we had introduced uh, new game plans and so on for the World Cup and they were evident to people who knew rugby. Should Ian Foster continue on? Well, it's not for me to say that he should or shouldn't. I will say this, one win doesn't make a coach yeah. that was really struggling a good coach. And and I think the good the good decisions that were made by him and by New Zealand rugby was to put Jason Ryan in there because I see the evidence of yeah. a really good forward coach uh, has turned that team around. The, the whole thing about uh, top-level rugby, if your forwards are not winning, you don't win the game. You, your backs can be nullified, which we saw against Ireland and we saw against South Africa in the first test. So it's not necessarily uh, Ian Foster's made any difference. If he had had that ability to make that difference, it would have been made a year ago. You know, All right, after, after yeah. the French test. Gotcha, yeah. So a special mention to uh, Jason Ryan from Laurie Mains uh, with us here on the panel. We've got a panel uh, here with us, Laurie. Uh, Anna. I'm not the person to ask any questions about Let's this. I was, <laughs> I was at a house music gig on Saturday night. I didn't even know that they course, were playing. Of course you were, Anna. Absolutely. And who wouldn't be? Uh, Peter Dunn. Oh, look, just one question, picking up on the point that Laurie made about, you know, one, one swallow doesn't the summer make. Um, outstanding performance from Argentina against Australia over the weekend. Laurie, just looking forward to that, looking at the game on the All Black game on Saturday, what do you think is going to happen when we play Argentina in a couple of weeks? Oh, I think we're in for a, a, a great battle. And the reason I say that, Argentina seemed to be strong right across the park. And historically, they've always had uh, some areas that they haven't been so strong. I haven't watched that game yet, but I did see a fair bit of the first test. And, uh, uh, and Argentina here last year, of course, when they had their first win over the All Blacks. So I, I, um, I expect them to put up a really good battle. Uh, now, now the big question for them is going to be, uh, <clears throat> we think the all-black forwards are back on track now, and they certainly look that way. Mm. Um, is Argentina going to be strong enough up front to combat that? And that's where the really interesting part of this game is going to be. We will know, I think, after, after the, the test against Argentina, if the all-blacks are back where they should have been, uh, or not, and and I'm talking about the forwards. So you're going to wait till then, which is probably the prudent yeah. thing to do. Well, I I think that the All Blacks should win the test and should win it uh, 
maybe with some difficulty, but they should win it well, uh, all things being equal. And um, like we, 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 we've just got so much ability oozing out of that team. You know, the, the record over the last year just absolutely staggers me when you see the ability of the players in that team. And I just want to mention one player. Yeah, briefly, Laurie. We We're almost we out of time. A, we haven't seen a lot of Rico Ioane in the last year. He was given chances on Saturday and he was simply outstanding. Fantastic. Laurie Maines there on the panel. Also, Anna Dean, Peter Dunn. Kia ora to you both. Fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Thanks to Sam Hollis, my producer. It's Lisa Owen, Checkpoint Next.